We're in our final week of Thrive. And folks, I really tried to get past Philippians 1. But it just is not going to happen. I don't know. We we're going we're to pull one verse from, from, from chapter 4. But we skipped over a whole section last week in an effort to get, get on with it. And the Holy Spirit said, um, excuse me, you, you forgot some of the most important pieces there in Philippians 1. So I don't know. I guess we're going to have to do another Thrive series on down the line and, and continue in Philippians. But we're going to be back in Philippians 1 again today. And this, in week 1, we had a tough message. We talked about being a slave, what Paul was talking about when he said a slave to Christ. A slave to Christ and how difficult that is. And how difficult that and offensive that word is with the stigma that's attached to it. And this week's going to be another tough message, but I'm telling you, if we will listen, open our spirit, it can be absolutely life-changing. Life-changing. Let's pray about that. Father, right now, I pray that you would open our heart and our spirit and our mind to receive your word, that it would be blessed, that you would anoint my lips to preach, that I would decrease so that you could increase in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to back up to a verse we've actually already covered, but from a different perspective. I want to use this verse as a springboard to the rest of our talk. So I'm going to start with Philippians 1.7. Philippians 1.7. I'm in the NLT. Paul says, So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you, for you have a special place in my heart. Just remember, this church sent him a life-giving, life-saving gift while he was in prison. He wrote this epistle and this letter from a Roman prison. And they sent a gift that really, really helped him, provisions and food and, and clothing and things like that. And so he says, you have a special place in my heart. Now listen to what he says. You share with me the special favor of God. Say that with me. Favor of God. Now, your translation may something up saying about grace, and, and those words are sometimes used interchangeably, but I like using the word favor, favor of God. And then he says, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the gospel. He says, favor of God, and then he connects it with imprisonment and defending the gospel. Now, we like to talk about the favor of God in America. We, we love to talk about the favor of God, but usually... It goes something like this. I've got the favor of God on me, man. I got the front row parking space at Walmart. I got the favor. I got the favor of God. I got, I got bumped up from coach to first class. I got the favor of God. Hey, I got promoted at work. I got the favor of God. And listen, I think God does those things. I think he, he, he does that and everything. But when we look at Scripture and the favor of God, these little blessings that we like to associate with favor are not always what we find in Scripture. Let's look for just one example. We're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 30 says, Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found, there's our word, favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Mary found favor with God, so she was chosen to carry and to give birth to the Son of God, the Messiah. But fast forward 33 years, and she would be forced to watch her son beaten, tortured, whipped, crucified, and die. The worst possible scenario for any mother. And yet she had the favor 
Doesn't sound much like the favor we think about, does it? And that's the problem. Once again, here we are, bumping up against what culture would tell us is the favor of God. Once again, here we are, wrestling, 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 I'm from the South, it's wrestling. Who says wrestle? Who says wrestle? Okay. Here we are doing that with this word. What we're told it means versus what the Scripture says. When we look at Scripture, here's what we get as a definition. Look at the screen. The favor of God is not just a wink or a smile. It is a sovereign grace that God gives us to thrive despite the circumstances. Let's look at that again. The favor of God is not just a front row parking space at Walmart. It's not just getting bumped up to first class. The favor of God is a sovereign, God-given grace to sustain us no matter what is going on in our life. No matter what. I've taught this next concept before, but it's so important and so rarely taught that I'm going to teach it again today, and I'm going to teach it again in the future. Here's what we need to understand. Look at the screen. There are two sides of faith. Just like this coin has two sides. It's just one coin. But there's two sides to it. There are two sides of faith. One side of faith is glorious and miraculous and amazing and filled with wonder. It makes for best-selling books and incredible testimonies. We've all heard them. We've all read those books. The first half of Hebrews 11, the faith chapter in the Bible, gives us a ton of those. Let's listen to the summary of those in Hebrews 11:32. How much more do I need to say, the writer says. He's just talked about all these epic things. He says it would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets by faith. Everybody say faith. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice. Listen to what he says, and received what God had promised them. Remember that statement. They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. This side of faith is huge. This side of faith is powerful, it's victorious, and it is real. God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever think or ask. He is able to do these things, and He will do them again and again and again. Can I get an amen? Come on. But in the very next verse, the coin flips, and we get Hebrews 11.35, but others, say others, Pastor, who are you talking about? Other Christians, other believers, other people of God just like you and just like me. Others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better, in, in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. 
wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. What happened to the miracles? What happened to the last-minute rescue? What happened to the epic display of God's grace and mercy and favor? Look at me. Everybody look at me. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, look at me. It's still there. It's still there. The coin has flipped. The story, the testimony is very different. But the power and the favor and God's presence is still there. In Jesus' name, it's still there. The reason there was only about a third of you that clapped was because that's a very, very difficult word. That's a hard word, and that's a rare word to hear in our culture. And that's what we struggle with. That's what we don't understand about faith. It's just as powerful. Are you listening? It's just as powerful when the answer doesn't come, when the story doesn't end the way we think it should, and yet our faith sustains us. Our faith sees us through every storm, every battle, every disappointment, and even the pain, and even through death. In Daniel chapter 3, don't put the scripture up yet. In Daniel chapter 3, we get the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three teenagers ripped away from their home in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They were given new names. They were made slaves. This isn't taught very often and it's graphic, but they were castrated. They would never have children. They were made to serve in the palace. And this crazy, insane king, egotistical, made a 90-foot statue in his own image of gold. And he said, whenever the music plays, you must bow down and worship the statue. But these three boys had determined in their heart to serve Jehovah God. No matter what. You can change my name. You can try to ruin my future, but I'm in God's hands. I trust God. I'm going to serve him no matter what. Nebuchadnezzar had created this fiery furnace for anyone who refused would be thrown and killed in the fiery furnace. And this is what happened. Daniel 3.17. This is one of the most powerful things in the whole Bible. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able. Everybody say able. He is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't. Come on, look at me. Even if he doesn't. Even if we have to die. Let me bring it home to us. Even if the healing doesn't come like we think it should. Even if the marriage does end, even if bankruptcy does come, even if I do lose the job, even if my kids are struggling, even if the story doesn't end the way I think it, I'm not going to bow to this idol. You can throw me in the flames. I believe God's going to deliver me, but even if he doesn't, you listen to me, O king, we're not going to bow. Whew. These boys knew. These boys knew that God was able to deliver them. They even believed that he would. 
but they trusted God regardless of the circumstances. Their lives speak to us this truth. Look at the screen. Our job is not to win the battle. It's to follow God's battle plan. We may not even understand it. We may never understand it until the other side. Our job is not to win the battle. Our job is to be obedient. Obedient. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego left the results up to God and decided to do the right thing regardless of the outcome. That is faith. That is a whole faith. Not a portion, but a whole. Look at Hebrews eleven thirty nine. 39. It says, all these people, who? Who were all these people? The ones who had been killed, the ones who were persecuted, the ones who were running for their lives, hiding in caves, stoned, all this stuff. The ones, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them, say that, none of them received all that God had promised. Remember what we talked about, the last one? They received what God had promised in this lifetime. In other words, these people, the ones who suffered, the ones who died, the ones who ran for their lives, they were all honored for their faith, but their victory didn't come in this lifetime. It came in the next. Paul understood this. He understood both sides. He was writing this epistle from prison. Paul understood that faith isn't a magic wand that you wave over and get what you want. Faith, listen to me, is the all-sustaining grace and favor of God that will see us through no matter what. What? No matter what. I want you to hear me today. I want you to hear my heart. Any other teaching that only includes one side, that, that, that side that gets us all excited and wants us, you know, especially as Pentecostals, get us, you know, woo, want to run the aisle, whatever. A teaching that is just that, that's all that faith is. And the results, that's, that's, you know, that's, it's dangerous. It's incomplete. It can be confusing. It can create shame and doubt and guilt. When we don't teach both sides and live both sides of the faith, listen to me, it cheapens faith. It cheapens the work of Christ on the cross. It cheapens every martyr's death. And you know what else? It cheapens that saint that prays for their mom or their dad who has cancer that they would be healed and then that person dies anyway. Nobody talking about this. I don't hear this about favor. Anybody else? There are two sides of faith. Both are real. Both are powerful. And both are needed. We can believe God. Come on. We can believe God for the impossible. 
But we also know that we will be sustained no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. That's faith. Back to Philippians 1, 12. Paul says, and I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything, say everything, everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in chains because of Christ. I'm in chains. I'm in prison because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Paul's saying, look, this isn't what I asked for. This isn't great. I'm not excited about being in prison. But listen, these chains are awful. These living conditions are horrible. But God is using all of it for His glory, for the expansion of His kingdom. God is using it to encourage believers. They're looking at me and saying, if He can do it, I can do it. And I can do it. Come on. People are getting saved because of my chains. Paul discovered something so powerful. And that is this. How to look for God's hand in every circumstance. In every circumstance. I will work together all things for the good to those who are called. He understood this next point. Look at the screen. See your obstacles as opportunities. See your obstacles as opportunities. This is what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said at the beginning of his letter. James 1, 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. All right, time out, James. What you smoking? That's crazy talk. Consider it joy when I go through stuff? Why would I ever do that, James? Because you know that the testing of your Faith, there's our word, produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let this thing finish out so that the devil can't bully you, so that life can't dictate to you what is right and wrong, so that you can stand for something in your life. Come on, let this thing happen. Use the obstacle as an opportunity. When a young man or woman joins the military... What's the first step in the process for them to become a soldier? Boot camp. Boot camp. Now, I may be wrong, but is boot camp typically a pleasant experience? How many have been through it? Raise your hand. Is it, is it, just, is it, is it awesome? Is it just really easy? Are the instructors focused on the comfort? Of the recruits. Hey, why don't they just save our taxpayers money and just put a gun in their hand and a uniform on them right off the bus and just send them into harm's way? Why would they not do that? Sixth grader right there. They're not ready. Come on. They're not ready. They're not ready. That drill sergeant is so hard on them because he knows or she knows that their life hangs in the balance. That they need to be prepared for battle. Everybody look at me. One of the biggest problems that we Western Christians have is that we spend an awful lot of time and energy avoiding 
conflict. Avoiding anything that would make us uncomfortable or cause us any distress whatsoever. I mean, we work hard at it. And yet those are the very things that cause us to grow the most. And those are the things God uses those times and seasons to prepare us for our next assignment. To get us ready to serve at a greater level, the next level in the kingdom. Is anybody satisfied where you are? Half of you are. Okay. I'm not. And I'm not asking for trouble. I'm not asking for things to come into my life. But at the same time, I know, I know that these things can be opportunities for growth. When I first started out in ministry two years ago, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You were the first ones. Um, In my early 20s, I was a youth pastor. And we were, I say we, Kathy and I were deeply, deeply hurt by the leadership of a church. We were on staff. We were wrong, I was wrongfully let go. It was a mess. It was a mess. This was a church, this was my grandmother. This is where my grandmother taught Sunday school for 40 years. This, is, this was blood, sweat, and tears. And thank God, when I think about that, and I think about how we could have handled that as young, almost like kids, like 23 years old, I'm so thankful that we decided to keep our mouth shut and leave well, not divide anything. But here's, I learned three things from that experience, that terrible, deep, deeply humiliating and difficult, hurtful experience. Can I use any more adjectives? <laughs> I learned three things, and I think you can, it will help you in these situations. I, number one, I would never treat anyone the way I had been treated. If, I was like, God, if you promote me, and I'm over volunteers or a staff one day or whatever, I will never, or I'm a boss in an office, whatever, manager, I will never treat anyone the way I was treated. Number two, I would choose to forgive. I would choose to forgive. I'm not going to. Unforgiveness, if left alone, will fester and become like a cancer and will overwhelm you. It will rob you of your joy and your purpose in life. I said, I'm not going to do that. I will choose to forgive. If you, if you let unforgiveness rule your life and, and upset your life and everything, the, the people that you're not forgiving don't even know it. I will choose to forgive. And number three, I would cling to God and never give up. Amen. I would cling to God. Cling to God. And never give up. I was not going to allow this bad experience to rob me of my assignment and my purpose and my calling. Come on. And by the way, because God is so amazing and so good, several years later, one of those men came to me and asked for forgiveness. And then I, everything is good. Uh, Totally, I mean... God is just amazing when we do those things. It doesn't always happen that way, but in this case, it did. And I can hug those, dear, those brothers. They understand it was a mistake. But if you've ever been deeply hurt, and if you've lived long enough, you have. On the job, at school, in a relationship, in church, 
in a marriage, through a divorce, whatever, you can apply these three things. And I promise you, I promise you, over time, not overnight, over time, God will bring healing. God will bring healing. And he'll use that difficult situation, he'll make it a testimony that will help somebody else and that will actually bring you joy and satisfaction in your life. He will use that thing to prepare you for your next assignment in life. Those decisions that I made in the middle of that difficult and painful time began to shape who I was immediately, and it continues to shape who I am and how I pastor today. So important, so important. But listen, here's the deal. If I had been exempt from that, if God had shielded me completely from that pain, I never would have learned those lessons. Our Thrive series is based in Philippians, and the most famous verse in the whole book, if you think about it, you'll know it's the most famous one. You can probably quote it. Somebody... What does it say? Philippians 4.13. Did they put that on the board? That was cheating. (laughs) Philippians 4.13. I can do all things. And we get, oh, we start getting, oh, pastor bringing it around now. We're going to have a shouting party. Woo, I can do all things. Yeah, I'm going to ruin this one for you too. All right. (laughs) The problem, the problem, the problem is that we've, we've taken it out of context. We think about it in terms of, you know, I can do all things. I can win that football game. Come on. I can, I can, I can, I can lose the weight. I can do all things. I can put that fried chicken leg down. Come on. I, may, I can make the grade. I can finish the project. I can do all things. <laughs> Lord, help me to put the fried chicken down. It's, come on, am I, am, I, am I preaching? Listen, but listen, but listen, but listen. But to know what Paul was really talking about with this, we've got to read it in context. Let's back up to verse 12. Look at the screen. I know what it is to be in need, Paul says, and I know what it is to have plenty. He was wealthy before. I have learned the secret of being... Dion, we don't say that much in this country. Come on. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this. That is a better translation than the original things. This, he was talking about being content. Paul wasn't talking about leaping over a building in a single bound. I can do all things. He wasn't talking about winning the Super Bowl. He wasn't talking about making a million dollars. He was talking about being content in every situation. He was talking about resting in the peace of God. Regardless of the circumstances, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. I hate to burst your bubble, but God really doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl as long as it's not Tom Brady. He is fine. Sometimes preaching is so fun. No, 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 no. He doesn't. 
But he does care. He does care about your spiritual growth and progress. He does care about you getting ready to fulfill your purpose. He does care about how you look at life. And here's the big idea. God loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. God wants you to thrive. I need to say it again. God loves you right where you are. Pastor, you don't know what I was doing last night. God loves you right where you are. Pastor, I walked in this morning with a, with a hangover. I, thank God you're here. God loves you right where you are. But he loves you too much to leave you there. It is not God's will that followers of Jesus Christ just limp along in life and survive. His will is that we thrive. His will is that we are filled with the joy of the Lord and it becomes our strength. That there's something different in us that people can sense and know when they meet us. This is the final verse. Actually, don't, don't put that up yet. Let me back up. I skipped something. When you live your life with purpose, listen, new life, we're all about purpose. Connecting people to their God-given purpose. When you live your life with a God-given vision and dream, He's going to shift something inside of you. And you will begin to embrace every struggle. See, is it an opportunity in those obstacles? You won't run away anymore from conflict. You will begin to see every obstacle as an opportunity. You won't ask for pain because that would be wrong. That would be crazy. But you will begin to see pain differently. You will begin to see purpose in that pain. It won't be destructive to you anymore. Now, this final verse is going to wrap up our entire series, Philippians 1.30. We are in this struggle together. We, hold up, hold up, I'm not done. We are the body of Christ. The body has many members, arms, legs, ears, eyes. If a body is, this isn't politically, politically correct to say anymore, but handicapped, it's missing something, right? If somebody loses a limb in battle or, you know, at an accident or something like that, they have to overcome a handicap. When you, listen, when you remove yourself from the body, you suffer and the body suffers. We cannot thrive alone. We cannot grow spiritually in isolation. That's why this whole thing about I, I, I connect better with God, you know, just without the church and because I've been hurt, I'm going to go up into the woods somewhere and connect with God. I don't know who you're connecting with up there, but I'd be careful. We were designed for community. Community with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the community of the church. Is the church perfect? But neither are you. And neither am I. So let's just be imperfect together and love on Jesus and do something great for the kingdom of God. Now give him a hallelujah.
Would you stand with me and bow your heads, please?